You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello and welcome back to a social justice podcast. I'm Nicholas Sperling, your host, and today I'm joined by Kyla Lee, a well-known lawyer and someone who I've followed on TikTok and on uh, Twitter for quite a while. Kyla, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a lawyer in Vancouver. I've been practicing for 10 years and my practice focuses primarily on um, impaired driving. So I am proximate to drug use a lot. Um, and I don't know, I just care about social justice issues. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this. So just for starters, can you tell us about your experience with drug criminalization and how this sort of relates to the work that you do? Yeah, so I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is prior to limiting my practice to just dealing with um, impaired driving and driving related offenses, I dealt with a lot of drug files where people were being charged with drug offenses, including, you know, everything from really hard drugs like heroin and cocaine, all the way down to soft drugs like cannabis. Um, and in all of those circumstances, every single time it just seemed to me like such a big waste of time and resources for the prosecution to be going after people who are drug users or people who were selling drugs to support their own habits or providing drugs which were a clean or a safe supply. Um, we had lots of cases, especially pre-cannabis legalization, which dealt with people who were um, like transporting cannabis to those gray area dispensaries that we used to have um, and providing essentially cannabis that was then being purchased by medical users who had difficulties accessing the cannabis they needed through the really complex system. So, uh, you know, again, I, I just I really felt like drug prosecutions were not in the best interests of our our community, they weren't in the best interests of the people who were being prosecuted, and the people who were causing the most harm were the people that were least likely to be caught and least likely to be charged. Right, yeah, because it does seem like the war on drugs is sort of a misplaced effort that really targets the users as opposed to the root cause of the issue, right? It does, especially because if you think about like the way that I don't know, the criminal underworld <laughs> is structured, or like the drug trafficking world is structured, the people who are at the top who are making the most profit um, are people who are essentially insulated by layers of workers below them. It's like a pyramid scheme, really. People don't think about it that way, but it really is. It's like a multi-level marketing scheme where you, you know, you might arrange for all of the big shipment of whatever drugs to come to you or the drugs to be produced, depending on what they are. Um, you might work all of those connections, but the person at the top doesn't usually have their hands in any of the actual work. And then below them, you have the people who are importing and exporting, you have the packagers and the distributors, and you have the street level sellers and then the users who often get co-opted into becoming sellers. You also, we see this a lot, there's actually a case that is going to the Supreme Court of Canada dealing with um, mandatory minimum sentences for certain drug offenses. I've seen you talking about this actually, or posting yeah. about it on Twitter, I think. <laughs> it's a case called Sharma, and it involves um, an individual who was um, facing a mandatory jail sentence for trafficking drugs. But this person was somebody who was like disproportionately affected by drug addiction, who was um, in a very disadvantaged position, and they essentially had to enter into the um, world of, of drug transactions um, as a seller and I believe also an importer for the purposes of funding all of the problems that have been created as a result of their drug use. 
And so this is what happens is you have these people who insulate themselves by essentially exploiting individuals who are addicted or who are down on their luck, people who are experiencing homelessness or who are underhoused, people with mental health issues. All of these people tend to get co-opted into the drug trade and used effectively as pawns. So just for, a, I guess, a general overview of what drug criminalization is, uh, <laughs> that's kind of the overall topic today, and I want to give people a general sense of what it is that we're talking about before we get into some of the deeper issues. Yeah. Are you able to just explain what drug criminalization is as kind of a basic overview? Yeah, I mean, drug criminalization is the creation and passing and enforcement of criminal laws against people who are involved with drugs, whether it's drug users, whether it's drug traffickers, whether it's drug producers or importers. It is creating a criminal law scheme designed to punish those individuals. And so in our Criminal Code of Canada and our Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, um, which are two pieces of federal legislation that create criminal offenses related to the sale, use, and uh, distribution of drugs in Canada. Drugs are defined in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So uh, there's different categories of drugs. So you have like Schedule 1, Schedule 2, Schedule 3, and Schedule 4 substances. Mm -hmm. um, depending on their severity, as the government perceives it, the consequences are harsher for your involvement with those drugs. So what we you know, might think about as hard drugs, like you know, your, your cocaine, your uh, heroin, your fentanyl, um, those things are viewed as more seriously, and so they attract greater penalties for offenses related to them. Um, the criminalization of drugs also includes things that are uh, outside of giving people criminal records for drugs, but prohibit people from accessing a safe supply by limiting the ability of um, advocacy groups and activist groups to provide um, access to clean or safe drugs, which ultimately, of course, results in significant amount of harm because you have people overdosing and dying. Um, criminalization of uh, drugs also uh, would include things that uh, deal with drug offenses outside of the traditional court measures. So one thing that often happens with simple possession prosecutions, so people who just have a small amount of drugs for their personal use in Canada, is they'll get charged but the prosecution, the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, who prosecutes all drug offenses, will say, we're not going to pursue these charges. Instead, we're going to refer you to a program called Alternative Measures, where you have to own up and feel really sorry that you had some drugs. And then you have to do a bunch of things to prove that you're a good person who doesn't deserve a criminal record for having some drugs. And it essentially compels you into programming that's offered by the government by essentially dangling the carrot of your criminal charges are going to be dropped if you participate in this program. Because that's quite a scary thing, I would imagine, to be told that you're going to have criminal charges laid against you. You'd probably be willing to do quite a lot to get out of that, I would imagine. <laughs> oh, yes, people are willing to do all sorts of things to get out of criminal charges, and especially for drug offenses, because, you know, I think we are quite privileged in Canada. Um, the consequences for many of our drug offenses aren't as serious as in other places in the world, where it could be death, it could be a life sentence, or you know, look at the even the United States, lengthy jail sentences for even small amounts of personal possession. But once you have a criminal record for a drug conviction, any country that you want to enter can see that. 
and they can deny you entry on the basis of your conviction for a drug offense. So a lot of people are terrified when they call me about drug offenses that a criminal record might prevent them from ever taking their family to Disneyland. Right. I think that's probably something a lot of people don't consider until they find themselves in a situation like that. Exactly. This is, you know, what we call in the legal system collateral consequences. So we don't just see consequences as far as like you have a drug conviction and you serve your sentence and it's all over. The collateral consequences of that can include all of the things that a criminal record can cause for you and consequences to your immigration. People who are not citizens of Canada, whether they're permanent residents or landed immigrants or here on a work visa, um, they also face additional consequences as a result of criminalization of drugs. Because depending on what the available sentence is for the offense, whether or not a court imposes it, it may lead to mandatory deportation. Wow. That's, that's some pretty serious yeah. consequences. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and can you explain why a drug like cannabis, for instance, was criminalized for so long when a drug like alcohol was not? Um, well, I mean, it really comes down to money and politics. Um, cannabis was criminalized um, in large part because there was, first of all, government didn't see a way to make money off it until they did. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's legal. Um, there was also a lot of fear. If you remember like that Reefer Madness movie, um, there were stories that were told about uh, cannabis use that it would make people act out and behave badly. Even though people had been using cannabis long since before European settlers even came to North America, um, the government wanted to control individuals. There's also in cannabis prohibition a really long backstory of racism. Mm -hmm. It's why the term marijuana was eventually used. They wanted to use marijuana with the J that makes the wa sound, um, in particular to associate cannabis and drug use to the Latin community in the southern United States and to the black community, um, largely in the United States. But of course, it had a trickle over effect into Canada. So um, even the terminology that was developed to to talk about cannabis was done um, in part out of racially motivated reasons that were designed to garner public support, given the large amounts of racism at the time, um, for prohibiting cannabis. It was associated with these you know, alternative lifestyles of people that are not like us type thing. Right. Yeah, and I, I had heard <laughs> that at, uh, uh, talked about, I guess, a few years ago when it was being legalized, talking about how we shouldn't be saying marijuana anymore. We should be saying cannabis because that's where it's rooted in. Yes. Um, and so with, with respect to alcohol as well, uh, you know, alcohol was prohibited for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had prohibition in Canada. There was prohibition in the United States. And it was when government realized that there were tax dollars to be made by regulating the sale of cannabis and when they realized that they were spending more money or regulating the sale of alcohol, sorry. Um, it was when the government realized that they were spending more money enforcing the law than they could be making by regulating alcohol. And now the government makes billions, each provincial government makes billions every year just on the taxes from selling alcohol in the province. So it's lucrative and it's worthwhile to, to have it. And I think you'll find that argument with quite a few of the social justice issues that yeah. we talk about where <laughs> you know, there's this money component that if you were to just solve the issue through different means, you could not have to spend all of this money on enforcement. Yes. Um, <laughs> We've kind of already touched on who's affected by the criminalization of certain drugs. Is there anything that you wanted to say further on that? Well, 
I mean, I think we also have to remember who is more likely to end up using drugs in the first place. Obviously, everybody usually gets an opportunity in their life to use some drugs, although there's lots of drugs I've never had the opportunity to use. But, you know, I had a, you know, a privileged life growing up compared to many people. People who are more likely to uh, use drugs and ultimately develop addictions to drugs are people with sort of underlying issues that they're looking for escape from. People who have experienced um, like violence at home, um, people who are combating mental health issues. I know that, you know, even for me as like a, um, you know, relatively put together person, um, sometimes I go home from work and I'm like, you know what, I just need a drink to take the edge off or I just need, you know, whatever to take the edge off. Mm-hmm. and. For some people, you can have that and you can get up the next day and, you know, you can go through life and and not have that affect you. But for other people who have an underlying predisposition towards addiction, they can't just get up the next day and not have another drink or not have another drug or not continue to use something. And so people who are even in some respects genetically predisposed to addiction are also more vulnerable to criminalization. And it's one of the reasons why I hate criminalization of drugs, because what you're really punishing at the end of the day, you're not punishing the people who are recreationally using drugs in a safe manner that uh, doesn't cause harm to themselves or other people. You're punishing the people who suffer from addiction as a result of no fault of their own. And it's one of the very few instances in our legal system where we just welcome the idea that you punish people for being mentally ill instead of punishing people for committing an act that should be criminal. Right. And this is sort of where the phrase uh, committing suicide comes from as well, right? Where we've criminalized the act of harming yourself yeah. <laughs> instead of actually helping people who are in those situations. Good luck prosecuting anyone for having committed suicide, of course. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a whole other situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so what would you tell someone who just says, well, you just don't do drugs and then you won't end up in this situation. Just don't do drugs is like, I, I don't know how old you are, but if you're, I think we're roughly the same age. Yeah, okay. Then you remember D.A.R.E. in school, mm-hmm. the D.A.R.E. to resist drugs program. That is one of the least effective methods at intervening early with people to try and tell them not to do drugs. Um, saying don't do something, and I'm like the worst for this. If you tell me don't do something, I'm gonna like, don't press that button, I'm gonna press the button. As soon as your back is turned, my finger's on the button. I got involved in politics because someone told me not to run. And I was oh, like, no. well, you're gonna tell me not to, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, so you know, telling people not to do something is not a way to actually stop them from doing it. And don't do drugs is such a simple answer if you have other methods if you have access to other methods of doing the thing that the drug does for you whether it's the dopamine rush that you get from taking the drug uh whether it's you know just the general physical enjoyment or you know maybe you don't have hobbies and so you do drugs instead and that's okay um but just saying you know don't do that do something else instead is a gross oversimplification it's very much like telling a depressed person just don't be depressed. Put a smile on your face. Get out of bed. Like, we all know that you don't do that. So, well, I'm, now I said don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that that's not an effective method of treating somebody's depression. Similarly, for somebody who um, might be inclined to experiment with drugs, telling them not to is not going to stop whatever urge is going to get people from using drugs in the first place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, there's news recently that BC has 
decriminalized drugs or is in the process of decriminalizing drugs that they've received some sort of exemption from the federal government. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Yes. So um, a provincial government can apply uh, to the federal government for an exemption under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, essentially to say these provisions of the CDSA don't apply to you. And so you can create your own laws or your own regulatory scheme within whatever you know, bounds of exemption that we give you. So because we have this horrific overdose crisis here in BC, the provincial government applied to the federal government and said, we have a massive problem. We need to stop the death. We need to decriminalize drugs so that we can stop arresting users and um, divert resources, presumably to investigating the, you know, poisoned drug supply um, and try and uh, make it less stigmatizing for people to use drugs so that they're more likely to access services that ultimately get them off drugs. Right. And would you say that safe supply is a good way of getting people uh, to be safer or to get them off drugs even? Yeah, I think safe supply is great. You know, the decriminalization exemption that was granted in BC doesn't really allow for safe supply. And this is, I think, one of the big myths. You know, what we wanted, what what British Columbians by and large wanted with this was for advocacy and activist groups and even the city of Vancouver themselves and the provincial government to be able to just like provide safe, clean drugs to people at no cost. It takes the power out of people who are profiting off deadly drugs. Um, but that's not what the government did. Instead, they granted an exemption for personal possession of very specific amounts of very specific drugs. And it's only for people who are over the age of 18. So youth who are very likely to be using drugs and to be dying from poison drug supply are not even protected by this. So as far as you know, dealing with, with the youth and the problem of people starting their drug use early, which most people do, you're not even capturing the group that is probably most vulnerable um, at this point. So I don't know, it's not the greatest exemption. It doesn't allow for the government to set up massive safe supply or distribution centers. Um, it would have been nice to see that, but mm -hmm. I guess baby steps. Hopefully, yeah, they're working in that direction. Is there currently any way that people can legally access the safe supply? Uh, yes. So the during the pandemic, um, the provincial health officer made some changes to, uh, like, I can't remember which laws, but some provincial laws that essentially would allow doctors to prescribe a safe supply to individuals. The problem is that many doctors refuse to do it because even though the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC has said, you know, we're not going to investigate doctors who prescribe a safe supply to try and help people who are struggling with addiction, um, accessing clean drugs, um, people are afraid of liability. Because if you prescribe a safe supply to somebody and then they do something wrong as a result of that, that safe supply, whether it's impaired driving and they kill somebody or whether it's they overdose and they die, um, or they overdose and they develop a life-altering injury when they're when they're treated for the overdose, they're worried about their personal liability. And so, although doctors can prescribe a safe supply, and theoretically you could go to a doctor and be like, hey, I would like a safe supply of opiates, the access to it is very difficult. It's also, <laughs> the access issue is also complicated by the fact that we have a family doctor crisis and shortage in British Columbia, 
And in order to properly get a safe supply through your medical professional, you need continuity of care. You need somebody who's going to understand you, understand that you have an addiction, understand why you need a safe supply, and be able to manage that appropriately. But if you don't have a family doctor, you don't have somebody who can do that for you. And the people who are, again, the most vulnerable and the most likely to be affected by this are people who may not be comfortable going to a doctor, even if they have one. If you think of children under the age of 16 um, who are still likely to be using drugs, those people don't have privileges between their doctor and themselves, and their doctor can reveal information to their parents. Oh. So they may not feel comfortable accessing their doctor or medical services to get a safe supply. For people who are experiencing homelessness, people who are underhoused, people living in poverty in the downtown east side, uh, again, they don't have access to these types of services. And it's not free. You can't just go to the pharmacy and be like, okay, how about my free fentanyl now? You have to pay for it. And so then you have to pay um, at the pharmacy. It's very different than purchasing drugs, you know, on the street where you have some money you're available uh, to get a, a, a dose or a hit and you can get it as you need it um, with a with a prescription you have to pay for your entire prescription at once and i would imagine for some people having that much in their hands might be a danger as might, well yeah it might pose a risk so you know what do you do you go to your doctor every day to get prescribed your your drugs every day we actually have a similar program to that in bc it's called the methadone program now, it's not actually a drug. Well, it, I mean, it is a drug, but it's a, a, a drug alternative. So people who are experiencing drug addiction can go on a methadone program where they essentially get a drug replacement by virtue of methadone, but they have to go every day or every week or every few days, depending on their dosage schedule, in order to access it. But if you have people who are underhoused or who are, who are facing poverty, you know, taking time off work or taking time out of your day to transport yourself to the place where you get your methadone, then get your methadone, then get back to wherever you need to be, that becomes a burden. And to do that every single day, imagine if you had to go every single day to uh, somewhere to get like your meal every day, you had to go there and you could only eat if you went and got that meal. And if you didn't eat, you would feel awful. You would be sick. It would make you unwell. And a lot of the people that are on the methadone programs as well are people who are actively involved in the criminal justice system because they have been committing offenses to support a drug habit. So they also have to be going to court, going to trials, sitting in court all day, and they can't go and get their methadone because they're expected to be in a courtroom. Right. And then you get people saying, why aren't you a productive member of society? Yeah. And they're going, we just don't have the time. I don't have time. I'm going to the methadone clinic all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is that fear of doctors that they're going to be liable? Is that a real fear? Like, could they be held liable? Yeah, I mean, in theory, a doctor could be sued if they were negligent in prescribing um, somebody a safe supply. But ultimately, you're probably not going to be found negligent. And this is why doctors have insurance. Like as a lawyer, I have insurance. And if I screw things up for a client, then my client can file a claim with the insurer and the insurer pays and I pay a deductible and yeah, it sucks, but there's all this coverage. Doctors have the same thing. So they shouldn't be terrified about the potential that they might get a claim for doing something to help somebody just because there's this remote possibility that things may go wrong. That's why you have insurance. As long as you're acting in a way that is appropriate, 
you can't even be found to be negligent. Just because there's an adverse outcome doesn't necessarily mean that you were negligent. And your insurer will step up to defend you and say you weren't negligent and this is why and you followed all of the government's protocols and you, you monitored the individuals. So it's, from a legal perspective, it's not really a realistic fear. Right. Well, I hope there's some doctors listening in that case <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that might hear that. You work primarily with DUI cases, from what I understand. So yep. how does drug, drug criminalization affect your clients in sort of capacity oh of them driving? So many ways. Okay. Just with cannabis, there is still, even though cannabis is legal, it's not really legal. It's highly, highly regulated. And there is still an entire criminal law regime that deals with cannabis and like how much cannabis you can have and how much cannabis you can move about in society. But the criminal laws related to cannabis are the stupidest things ever. <laughs> You're going to get me on a rant here, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Go for it. Um, so first of all, we don't criminalize just being impaired behind the wheel by cannabis or by any other drug, but cannabis specifically. We have um, three different offenses related to cannabis and driving. The first is being impaired. You will probably never find somebody who is actually impaired in their ability to operate a motor vehicle by cannabis. And the reason for it, numerous studies have been done on the effects of cannabis on the body. And what happens is people who are high can perceive their level of highness and know that they shouldn't be driving. They've, they've even done studies where they, they dosed people. Um, they got to the, them to the point where they were like, oh no, I should not be driving. And then they said, well, guess what? We're gonna make you drive anyway. And they put them on the road and they tested their ability to drive. And they weren't impaired in their ability to operate the motor vehicle because they were able to compensate for their actions. So um, one thing that they found with cannabis users is that they would be more likely to um, start stopping earlier. So if you see a red light, they would apply the brakes sooner than people who were sober or people who were on alcohol who would apply the brakes like at the last second. Um, and what they discovered was that it was a, a reaction to perceiving that their reaction time was going to be slow. So compensating for that. Right. So, so people who are on cannabis would have an awareness of yeah. the fact that they're high and are co trying to compensate for it, whereas people who are drunk are maybe do completely not. unaware. Do not. They did, they did the same study with people with alcohol. So they gave people one drink and they said, would you be comfortable driving right now? And they were like, yeah, totally. I can drive, you know, one drink. I'm fine. They gave people two drinks and said, would you be comfortable driving now? Oh, I don't know. It's probably not a good idea. I'd better take a cab. Then they gave people three drinks and they said, would you be comfortable driving right now? And everybody was like, yeah, give me the keys. I can do this. Right. But the cannabis users, the more cannabis they gave them, the less comfortable they became in driving the car. The only problem that they found that people couldn't uh, compensate for was lateral position in the lane. So staying between the lines in a straight line. Mm. They didn't deviate out of the lane very often, but they kind of weaved within the lane, which, oh, okay. you know, if nobody else is in your lane is not a really big deal. And the other piece that I've heard talked about is kind of having a slow reaction time. So if something were to be unexpected while you're driving, you might not react to it as quickly if you're, in um, if you're using cannabis. Yes, and you know, obviously there are gonna be unpredictable things while you're driving that you can't compensate for, um, but cannabis users recognizing that would drive slower on average than people who were sober or people who used alcohol who would often speed. In fact, speed is surprisingly a very big indicator of alcohol consumption hmm. because of the increased risk-taking and the lack of awareness of the consequences of your actions. 
So if someone's drinking, they're more likely to drive faster? Yes, they're more likely to drive faster, brake later, um, and not react to hazards on the road. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the, that's the impairment by cannabis piece. Um, and it's proven through a series of psychophysical BS tests. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but... Oh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> bullshit tests. So they do, and I shit you not, 12 steps that they put people through. 12 steps was not an accident. The people who developed this test is the International Association of uh, Chiefs of Police in the United States. Is this like a field sobriety test? It's similar to that. Um, it has all of the steps of the field sobriety test, so the things you've seen on TV, like walking the line and um, standing on one leg and following the pen with your eyes. But then they also do your blood pressure. They measure your pupil size. Uh, they measure um, your heart rate. Uh, they take your temperature. They like literally grab you and squeeze you to see how good of muscle tone you have. Because I know that like my muscle tone is gonna change overnight. <laughs> I wish it did. Like you know, every June, July, August, I could have really nice muscle tone in my stomach, <laughs> and then the rest of the year can be fine. But and this would yeah. assume that they have like a base for what your yeah, muscles would yeah, normally be Yeah, like? because every person's body feels the same when you squeeze it, unless they're <laughs> on drugs. Um, yeah, this is, this is the actual science that they wow. came up with. And they make you do a bunch of silly tests too, where they, like there's one where they make you stand with your feet together, your arms at your sides, tilt your head back, taking off all three elements of your equilibrium, your sight, your inner ear fluid, and uh, your stance. Um, and then they make you poke your finger to your nose and they tell you touch the tip of your finger to the tip of your nose but the tip of your finger is not like the pad of your finger which most people understand the tip of your finger to be it's like where your fingernail ends oh and they don't tell you that but then if you don't do it right they say you missed it and that's a clue they call it a clue so it's 12 steps not by accident they developed it as 12 steps because they wanted people to associate <laughs> the drug testing with addiction like the 12 steps of like addiction. the 12 step program yes exactly so it's a 12 step program and then juries in the united states hear 12 step program they think this person's an addict they think addicts shouldn't be driving because they're a danger to the public and criminalization of drugs leads to wrongful conviction for impaired driving we also have limits on how much drugs you can have in your body and there's all sorts of limits prescribed in the criminal code for all sorts of different drugs or the metabolites of those drugs because you can't always catch the drugs so sometimes you look for evidence that the drugs were there and this can be evidence that you you were impaired by the drug hopefully while you were driving but there's not actually the scientific correlation for that for cannabis they have two different legal limits for thc in your bloodstream one is 2.5 nanograms per milliliter of blood, and the other one is five. It's an automatic criminal record if you have five. It's maybe a criminal record if you have 2.5. Huh. Yeah. And what are these numbers based off of? They're based off of some bogus studies that have repeatedly been debunked um, that were done like way back in the 70s that essentially said you were impaired by cannabis if you had those concentrations of THC in your bloodstream. The problem is, that they don't actually correlate to impairment. They've done s numerous studies since that have clearly established that a blood THC concentration is not indicative of impairment because what happens with THC 
is it's stored in your fat cells. And then it gets released into your bloodstream over time. And as it's released into your bloodstream, your THC levels go up. But the psychoactive effects of it don't actually reach your brain. Mm. So your brain doesn't feel any impairment. You just have an elevated THC concentration. In British Columbia, we used to have a prison that would allow people to smoke cannabis, if you can believe that. They don't let drugs in jails anymore because that's no fun. Um, <laughs> no <laughs> how can you punish people? Fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they um, and they closed the prison down and they moved the people from the prison to a different prison where they would be allowed to use uh, or not allowed to use cannabis. And they tested them over a series of weeks. And some people had THC concentrations well above the legal driving limit even a month after they had last used cannabis. Wow. Yeah. So you could have been not having used for an entire month, have someone pull you over, test you, and then convict you of being intoxicated while you're driving? Yes, exactly. And this type of study that we've done into the effects of cannabis on driving, the effects, uh, the uh, distribution, absorption, and elimination of THC from the bloodstream, we have not done that same level of study on every drug that's prohibited in the criminal code or the CDSA. You know, um, the law on cocaine is any detectable amount. Maybe you're not impaired by cocaine at any detectable amount. I don't know. I'm, science hasn't looked into it. Because we have international prohibitions on almost all of these drugs, there's never been an opportunity to really study their effects on driving and the absorption, elimination, and distribution in the human body. The best we can do is study it through people who are prescribed similar drugs for medical reasons. So if all of that is allowed, what are you then able to use as a defense if someone <laughs> were to get charged with? Almost nothing. So also in our criminal code, they've written in a number of legal presumptions about your impairment. So if you go through that 12 step program and at the end of the program, the officer thinks that you're impaired, the officer gets to call a class or category of drugs that they think is what you're impaired by. So, you know, they put you through the test and they go, Nicola, I think that you're probably probably cannabis and then uh, and probably because you admitted to the cop that you smoked some weed a couple hours ago or whatever um, then they do a urine test not your blood your urine and if what they called shows up in your urine then you are presumed to be impaired and impaired by that drug at the time that you were operating the car the problem with using urine is urine's like your body's dumpster. Everything that you eat or drink or smoke or ingest um, gets eliminated through your kidneys. Your kidneys are like your body's filter, right? It's all going through your kidneys and then all the waste is coming out at the end. And because it takes a long time, you know, I, I don't know how many times you pee a day. You don't know how many times I pee a day. How much you drink affects how much you pee. Um, your general kidney health is going to be uh, affect the elimination and filtering that your kidneys do. Like every body is different. So the presence of a metabolite of a drug or a drug in the urine, scientists agree, is not indicative of impairment by that drug, a particular concentration of that drug in the body, uh, or a time period of when somebody ingested or consumed or used that drug. And yet for our criminal law system dealing with impaired driving, we prohibit driving if you can't do a bunch of physical tests, 
and or you have an elevated or a lower heart rate or an elevated or a lower temperature <laughs> or blood pressure um, and your eyes maybe aren't the way that you would expect them to be and you have something in your urine. Right. So my understanding is that if you're in the USA, for instance, and you were to be asked to do a field sobriety test, you could refuse and they could take you to the police station and take a blood sample. Is that the same in Canada? No. So every state is different in the U.S. Um, so that understanding that may not be every might state. not be every yeah. state. Um, but yeah, most states you, you're permitted to refuse tests. Um, in Canada, if you refuse to comply with any of the tests, whether it's a saliva test, whether it's a physical coordination test, whether it's a breath test or a blood test or a urine test, it's a criminal charge for refusal to comply with a demand. And if you're convicted, a mandatory minimum $2,000 fine and one year driving prohibition and an automatic criminal record. Wow. Yeah. So it's really difficult if, if someone has it out for you. Uh, oh, yeah. In, in a position of power, that is. Uh, and if you know somebody, like, I mean, this law is ripe for abuse. Because if you know somebody who takes drugs because they have a medical condition, like think about somebody who has, you know, like a bone cancer or um, like a chronic pain problem they might present in a way that doesn't look you know normal as far as their manner of walking their manner of speech their behavior they may be you know you get people with chronic pain who also have um, obesity issues that contribute to that um, so their walking um, might not be good they're not going to have great muscle tone because of obesity um, you know all of these underlying factors and then they take medication to treat their ailment those people are going to perform the tests poorly because they're physical coordination and health tests. And then they're going to come back with positive levels of drugs in their urine. And the law is going to presume them to be impaired, even though they may be less safe on the road without their medicine. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about people even like with mental health issues, uh, people with uh, disabilities like ADHD who take um, Ritalin or Vivnase, I don't know. I'm looking at one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> See, mm -hmm. if I really had it in for you, I could phone the police and be like, you know, that Nicola, she's on a lot of cocaine all the time. She drives around on her cocaine. And then they're going to pull you over and they're going to take you through all these tests and you're going to be terrified because you're being, you know, investigated by the police and your heart rate's going to go up naturally and your blood pressure's going to go up naturally. And, um, you know, maybe some of the symptoms of, of your condition are going to be more prominent because of the stressful situation. And then they take your urine and oh, there's a metabolite of cocaine in there that also happens to be a metabolite of your medication, and now you are guilty. And this is something that actually really concerns me because the RCMP doesn't like me. No. They've got me blocked <laughs> on social media, so I do worry about retaliation. Yeah. And if it's so easy for them to retaliate, that's very concerning for everyone. And who are, who are going to be more likely the targets of, of this by police? It's going to be people of color, it's going to be trans people, it's going to be activists involved in social justice, it's going to be indigenous people and women. So <laughs> who are we really criminalizing when we criminalize impaired driving? We're not criminalizing people who are necessarily, you know, taking a bunch of drugs and irresponsibly getting behind the wheel when they should know better um, or not making a, a safe plan. We're criminalizing the people who are most likely to be vulnerable to abuse by police. Right. 
Yeah, and I think that's really important for people to be aware of. Uh, I think the other thing that factors in is my understanding is that the police don't have a duty to protect the public. Is that the case? Because if it is, then they can pick and choose who they want to protect as well, right? I mean, so there is a, a common law duty that police have to protect the public, but the sort of ability to enforce that is almost nil. You would essentially have to wait for the police to fail in their duty and then file a lawsuit and demonstrate that they failed in that duty and then you might get compensation, but you would have to have standing to bring the lawsuit. But as far as like stopping impaired drivers, any police officer driving around between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. could probably pull over most cars and take people off the road who should be taken off the road. Um, you're going to have your highest proportion of impaired drivers, whether it's alcohol or drugs, at that time of night. Um, and there's less traffic, so you're not stopping the people who are just doing their daily commuting. Um, and they've done this. Like, they've experimented with this to prove to themselves that it's true. Mm -hmm. But they don't do that. They don't, you know, they don't just pull over randomly, like, oh, we're going to pull over all red cars tonight. They, they don't. And they may say that they're not targeting individuals, but that's not true. Right. The because statistics tell a bit of a different the story. The statistics tell a different story. And just because you're not cognizantly saying to yourself, I'm going to pull over all brown dudes in their 20s, doesn't mean that the majority of my clients don't end up being brown dudes in their 20s because they are disproportionately stopped by police. And that's the difference between a conscious bias and an unconscious bias. Right. And unconscious bias, of course, is rife in not just policing, but everything, the justice system as a whole. Absolutely. I think we all have unconscious biases. Oh, right? totally. Yeah. <laughs> Do you believe that the role of police needs to change when it comes to drug criminalization? Yes, I do. A hundred percent. First of all, I don't think the police should be involved in most drug enforcement. Where the police, the only role that the police really should have is in finding the people who are poisoning the drug supply and getting rid of those people. But as far as people who are providing clean drugs, the police should have nothing to do with it. Stopping users, and this is something that they do that's such a big harassing thing, is they will find people that they know are drug users, they will stop them, they will illegally search them, knowing that they're violating their rights, knowing they've unlawfully detained them, knowing that they have no grounds to believe that they've done something wrong, find drugs on them, and then use the threat and fear of a potential criminal charge to say, tell us who sold these to you. And because of the rules around standing in challenging things in criminal cases, if the unlawfully stopped and searched drug user turns over a name, the police can then use that as grounds to go get warrants or to go enforce the law against other individuals. So what ends up happening in the same way that, you know, the, the, the users and the addicted individuals are used by, as pawns by drug traffickers, they're also used as pawns by police in the war on drugs because they're, the police just don't, don't have any regard for their rights. They completely disregard them in order to extort information out of them by conducting these illegal stops and frisks. And they get away with that because the people that aren't doing it, I would imagine, don't have the ability to sue them. And then the people that they're taking to court aren't the same people that... Correct. So in court, I can't say, well, you violated that guy's rights to get information against me, so that information shouldn't be considered. Because they're allowed to use information they got in violation of the charter unless it was in violation of your charter rights. So you don't have the ability to challenge the validity of that search or that seizure. 
Um, the people also who are, again, disproportionately affected by this police misconduct are people who don't have access to the resources to bring a lawsuit. Because what are your damages? Um, you know, when the court, when you sue the police, the court is going to award you damages for violations of your rights based on the extent of the damages. And if we look at like the famous case that dealt with damages for violations of the charter is called Ward. Actually, a lawyer in Vancouver, Cameron Ward, um, who uh, I guess wandered around saying that he was going to pie the prime minister, Jean Chrétien at the time, uh, <laughs> for some reason. And there were all these like pieing the prime minister incidents that had taken place. So the VPD detained him and they strip searched him, which, you know, you're not keeping a pie anywhere that's not visible. <laughs> Yeah. Or it's a really small pie <laughs> and very overcooked. I don't know. <laughs> so they strip search this guy looking for evidence that he's going to pie the prime minister because he's been saying that he's going to do it. So he sues the police. Uh, he sues the city of Vancouver. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And for a strip search, he got $5,000 in charter damages. Obviously, wow. his legal fees and the costs of the litigation were way more than that. Um, so for somebody who's stopped and searched and has their drugs taken away from them and they're questioned and maybe it's 20 minutes out of their life and they're not even subject to a strip search, what, what's it going to be worth? Like no lawyer is going to want to take that on pro bono because the cost of doing the litigation will far exceed any value that will come from it. Right. Because my understanding is that you are more likely to get awarded court costs if you seek damages than if you're trying to set precedent. But in that case, there may not be precedent to set because it, it is already established yeah. that you shouldn't be strip searching someone. So yeah, there's the no, only reason to sue would be for damages. Yeah, there's no precedent to set. Um, it doesn't deter the police because they don't pay their own legal costs, right? We do. That's not remote. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, that's the taxpayer gets to pay for the police to engage in misconduct and be sued for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a scary one. I realized how much money I'm spending on policing through my property taxes, and I'm going, you have me blocked on social media. Why am I paying you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you have any tips for people who are interacting with the police? Yeah, don't talk to the police. The only thing that you have to, if you're pulled over in your car, the only thing that you have to say to the police is your name, address, name and address of the registered owner. You have to produce your license, registration, and insurance. Beyond that, do not talk to the police. Don't tell them, well, I just smoked a joint back at my friend's house and I'm just on my way home, but it was like only half a joint, man. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't admit that you have some cannabis in your backpack or whatever. Don't give the police any reason to interact with you longer than they need to. And Anything you say can and will be used against you, right? Exactly. And if you're walking down the street and the police stop you and start to question you, you can ask them, am I being detained? And if you're not being detained, then you do not have to provide your identification information. It's only if the police are actually investigating something. Otherwise, this is what's known as carding. Mm -hmm. And carding, uh, VPD in particular, have a policy, uh, it's a relatively new policy about it, that says that if they are engaged in a random stop that is for the purposes of finding somebody's ID and questioning them with no basis, they have to advise you of that. Okay. They're supposed to proactively advise you of it, but we all know they don't. Right. So make sure you ask. And if you're not detained, you do not have to provide any information. And I think I remember you tweeting about there being a difference between being stopped on the side of the road and being stopped while you're driving. 
because the assumption, I guess, is that if you're driving and being pulled over, you've committed some sort of infraction to have caused that. Yes. But what happens if you're pulled over and they can't articulate an infraction that they pulled you over for? Yeah, so if you're you're pulled over for no reason, then you may have a defense, um, although I would still recommend in those situations still identifying yourself and producing your license and insurance. So um, seeking recourse later, basically. Yes, uh, and the reason is because police have a really broad power to stop not just for an offense, but also they can stop any vehicle that's in motion on the roadway for the purposes of checking sobriety, that the driver is validly licensed, that the vehicle is insured, um, and that the both the driver and the vehicle are fit to be on the road. So if you are driving and they pull you over and you definitely didn't do anything wrong, they still may be acting lawfully in stopping you. So I would never recommend to somebody to use your judgment in that situation to try and determine the legality of the stop just to not ID yourself because you could end up charged with obstruction. Where it gets more tricky is if you are not driving. If you're a passenger? uh, Well, if you're a passenger and the police pull over the vehicle that you're in, get out and walk away. Don't even engage with the police. Unless you are under investigation, they don't have the right to detain you. Um, To always get out and walk away, don't even have anything to do with it. Um, No, it's for, um, like if you're sitting in your parked car on the side of the road, or you're in your driveway, or you're in a parking lot, and the police come up and knock on your window. Unless they're investigating an offense, they actually don't have the authority. There's a BC Supreme Court case on this, as well as an Ontario Court of Appeal case. It's gone to the Supreme Court of Canada. The law may change on this, but as of right now, they don't have the authority to conduct licensing and sobriety checks of individuals who are not actively driving the vehicle on a highway. And would that apply to someone just sleeping in their vehicle? Because that's pretty common these days. Yes, and we see a lot of impaired driving investigations that take place where people are sleeping in their car, the police knock on the window and wake them up, and then all of a sudden they start to investigate sobriety. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I imagine if you're someone who's having to live in a van on the street that you're probably not staying away from drugs 100% of the time. No, and, you know, who is staying away from drugs 100% of the right, time, exactly. right? Yeah. So, you know, you have, um, yeah, you have people who are living in their vehicles. We have um, a big uh, population that does that here in the Lower Mainland, and those people are liable to be criminalized for using their vehicles as a residence in addition to using drugs. This one is one that I saw on your website. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. What, what is immediate roadside prohibition? Okay. I was like, is this going to be a hard one where I don't actually know the answer? Okay. <laughs> An immediate roadside prohibition is a 90-day driving prohibition issued to somebody who either uh, fails a breathalyzer test or refuses to participate in one. Um, so it's a 90 days off the road. Your car is impounded for 30 days. Uh, you get a $500 fine. Um and uh, referral to a remedial driving program. Okay, so I mean that is going to be affecting someone regardless of whether or not they, I guess they're testing positive for drugs? Correct, if you refuse to provide a sample, um, then you can get the same prohibition. But the immediate roadside prohibition is alcohol specific. Okay. If um, the police are making demands related to drugs, you can still get a 90 day driving prohibition. It's just there's no 30-day car impound. Uh-oh. So it, it happens um, if you refuse to participate in a demand for a drug test um, or if your drug test comes back as showing that you had um, an impermissible concentration of drugs in your system or the DRE 
evaluation, the 12-step program, coupled with the uh, results of your urine test. So what often happens, and this is really annoying, is you get people who are tested, and because there is a 250-plus day turnaround time to test a sample of urine, almost a year later, after you've been pulled over and investigated by police, when your life is probably completely different, you get a knock on your door, and the police are there, and they prohibit you from driving. So you've been driving the entire year, but yep. suddenly now you can't drive. But now it's unsafe for you to be on the road. You're a danger to the public. How strange. It's terrible. It's And there's no logic to, to it. And the only reason that it takes that long has nothing to do with any like legislation. It has to do with the fact that the RCMP lab, which analyzes blood and urine samples, is so backlogged and so behind on their work. And the RCMP refuses to hire more people and fund the lab. And they predicted this when cannabis was legalized and they overhauled our criminal laws related to drug impaired driving. They predicted that these lab delays were gonna get worse. At the time, it was 119 days. So we've seen the delays double in the last, what has it been, five years since legalization? The lab delays have doubled. The resourcing of the lab has changed not a bit. Wow. Yeah. So predicted it, but just didn't do anything about it. Predicted it, did nothing about it, didn't put money towards it, thought, you know, I guess passing a bunch of bad criminal laws will just make people stop using drugs. Mm -hmm. well, that's clearly not no. the right route to go. <laughs> um, also from your website, uh, I noticed that you have a lot of experience with drug testing devices or with alcohol testing devices. Yes. Um, can you explain the issue with some of these devices? Yeah, okay. Um, well, alcohol testing devices, there's two different ones that are used in BC. One is called an approved screening device, and that's like a handheld breathalyzer, and the other one's called an approved instrument. Both of them use the same mechanism for testing for alcohol. And what it is, is it's called a fuel cell. It's like a battery, it's about that big. Um, and it's a, um, uh, it's coated in black platinum with sulfuric acid on top of it. And so when you provide a breath sample, your breast sample will be drawn onto the fuel cell where it'll oxidize. And as it's oxidizing, a chemical reaction takes place with the black platinum and with the acid. And the chemical reaction will, if alcohol is present, produce a current. The strength of the current will tell you how much alcohol is there. So that's why it's called an electrochemical fuel cell, because it's looking at electrical, uh, electrical current generated from a chemical reaction. Um, and the electrochemical fuel cell is susceptible to interference because ethanol produces a reaction, but so does acetone. And acetone can be naturally occurring in your body or can be a result of something that's not alcohol that you've consumed. Um, diabetics often will have elevated acetone concentrations. And what might make you over the legal limit in um, ethanol is not the same as what might make you over the legal limit in acetone because they're different chemical compounds, so the strength of the current is going to be different when the reaction takes place. They both produce a reaction, but they produce a different reaction. So the measurement is gonna be different. The other thing is the fuel cell can't tell where the alcohol came from. You can take alcohol um, and you can blow through a simulator and you can the fuel cell will go, okay, this is the same as, as alcohol in a person's body. You can like swish and spit mouthwash and blow, and it can't tell that the alcohol is just the alcohol that you swished around in your mouth. 
So the roadside breathalyzers don't compensate for that. The ones at the police station do to some extent, uh, they have what's known as a slope detector. And so essentially there's a, at the same time that the electrochemical reaction is taking place, there's also an infrared chamber. And it's about this big, <laughs> but it's actually two feet long because there are mirrors inside it. Oh. And so your breast sample um, bounces off these mirrors and light is reflecting through it and bouncing off the mirrors in this chamber. And the speed at which the light passes through it and goes from one end to the other, traveling a distance of two feet in the end, um, the speed at which it does that tells um, the instrument about what your blood alcohol level is. So it'll compare what's on the fuel cell to or it's supposed to compare, but it doesn't actually do a comparison. Instead, it looks at what came out of the infrared chamber, and it looks for any evidence that the alcohol concentration is dropping off rapidly. And this would suggest that the alcohol was from your mouth and not from your bloodstream, because if it was your bloodstream, it would be a cons constant. Okay. They don't have anything like this to test for drugs, um, because the scientific underpinning of this is that um, your your breath is capable of demonstrating what is in your blood um, based on what's known as deep lung air. I know this is a lot of science, <laughs> so cut out as much as you want, but um, deep lung air is the alveolar air. Um, you've got these little like hairs at the bottom of your lungs. It's kind of creepy and makes me want to cough when I think about it. <laughs> and these hairs are like right above your bloodstream. And so what happens is you get vapor coming out of your bloodstream into the bottom of your lungs and mixing with the air in the bottom of your lungs. And the theory is that 2100 parts of that air at 34 degrees Celsius, the temperature of your breath as it leaves your body, will be proportional to what is in your bloodstream. And this is because of a, a scientific principle called Henry's Law, which says that at a given temperature, the saturated vapor above a solution contains a concentration of solute proportional to the concentration of solute in the solution. But because drugs behave differently in the body than alcohol, we don't actually know what the it's called partition ratio for any drug is. And we don't know necessarily that the drug in your bloodstream is going to evaporate the same way into your lungs that alcohol vapor does. So they haven't been able to develop breathalyzers for drugs. Huh. So what they do is they test your saliva instead or your urine, which we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. And the saliva tests that they do are stupid because you're literally rubbing something that looks like a tampon around inside your mouth for like one to three minutes. And then uh, it absorbs your saliva and it draws it down onto a little stick. And the stick goes inside a machine that looks like a Keurig coffee maker. And then it makes a bunch of noise. And in the end, after 10 minutes, it produces a result. This all looks and seems very fancy until you realize that it's actually no different scientifically than taking a COVID test or taking a pregnancy test. So it's just yes or no, kind of? Yeah, it'll tell you yes or no. I mean, it'll trigger a threshold concentration, um, but it's the same, it's the actual same analytical method. Oh. It's taking the antibodies, binding them with a solution, looking for a reaction that will produce a color on a strip, like you get the two lines if you're pregnant or the two lines if you have COVID and you don't want those two lines at once because then you've got a problem. Um, and then this, the, um, that'll tell you the results. Like you don't need the machine. Mm -hmm. You could literally just do it the same way we all take all these other types of, of tests. 
So all the, the machines time. just to make it look more official. The machine literally has an infrared um, uh, reader in it that looks for the colored strip appearing. Oh, okay. <laughs> it sees for the police officer just in case the police officer can't interpret a test. And like, fair enough. Okay, I guess people for many years were confused by how to interpret pregnancy tests, but I mean, don't we all have the hang of how to interpret? antibody tests now from the last two years <laughs> had a lot of experience yeah. with it yeah <laughs> so yeah that's that's the testing and just like your COVID test uh or your pregnancy test can be falsely elevated by things so too can your saliva test so if you've recently consumed a cannabis product that might not be in your bloodstream or might not even be impairing you you will still test positive um, recent smoking uh, essentially coats the inside of your mouth, and because you're testing the inside of your mouth, it's all in your saliva. Eating cannabis products, where it'll take you, you know, 30 minutes to an hour after eating to experience the impairing effects. Um, you might be completely sober, but you've got a mouthful of weed, so you're right. going to get a positive test. And also other things, you know, like um, poppy seeds will trigger a positive result for opiates. Um, you know, there's all these interference. And the company that manufactured these devices started to do tests on interfering substances, realized there was no way they could test for everything that would affect the results. So they just gave up and they were like, just wait 10 minutes before administering the saliva test. But in Canada, the law says you have to do the test immediately. So we just don't wait. Right. So hope for the best. And is that's because they don't want to detain you for longer? Correct. Because you're detained without access to counsel. Right. Okay. Moving from police to the justice system, if that's all right. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if you think that there are changes that need to happen within the justice system as well when it comes to drug criminalization absolutely the justice system well first of all we have um one level of prosecution in canada that deals with all drug offenses so you know if you get pulled over and you're charged with with impaired driving you deal with the provincial crown except if you're in a territory um if you smash your girlfriend's window because <laughs> she cheated on you uh you deal with the provincial crown but if you have a little flap of a white powdery substance you deal with the federal crown mm. so the problem with that is that you get a prosecutor that is hired by the federal government that is taking direction from the federal government who's not as familiar with local circumstances and influences and of course you know you have prosecutors working in the courthouse at 222 Maine, who know about you know the unique problems that the downtown east side faces but they're still taking their direction and their marching orders from Ottawa. And nobody in Ottawa gets it. They do not get what it's like in Vancouver, generally, much less what it's like in the downtown east side or in you know some of our, our, our poorer uh, communities that have a lot of drug addiction throughout BC. And the federal prosecutors also are not local to those smaller communities. So when you have People, for example, we did a, a drug case on Haida Gwaii many years ago, and the prosecutor came over from Vancouver. They're not familiar with the neighborhood and the people and you know who's reliable and who's not. You have somebody who doesn't know the community, who's removed from it, and that prevents you from exercising sensible discretion that makes sense in the context of where you are. 
you know, getting a, a, a charge in Richmond is different than getting a charge at, at 222 Main Street. They, even though it's half an hour between the two places, they are different places as mm -hmm. far as the community and the culture. So you lose something by having a federal prosecution service deal with problems that are effectively local issues. Um, so that's one thing I think should change. I don't think there should be this separation between the PBSC and the provincial crown. And how does that work with this decriminalization happening in BC if the direction is coming from a province where that is not the case? Um, well, it's uh, that remains to be seen because we've only just, you know, had this announced and it doesn't even take effect till January. So mm -hmm. we will we'll see how that actually pans out. I expect that there will be a very hard line taken on the four corners of the exemption. And if you are just outside that line, they are going to prosecute you and they are going to come down hard on you because if they blur the lines, they may be perceived as not actually um, caring about drug prohibition. And that would, I guess, be bad for some reason that I don't <laughs> entirely understand. But that's my expectation, mm -hmm. is that unless you're squarely within the law, you are going to be made an example of. Um, the other thing that will be interesting to see is the Public Prosecution Service of Canada before the federal exemption was granted did change their policy. This was in the January 2020, I think, right before the pandemic. So we haven't really seen how it's played out, but they changed their policy nationwide to no longer prosecute people for simple possession offenses of drugs. So it used to be like in BC, you probably wouldn't get prosecuted most of the time, depending what you had um, for simple possession, but now they're doing this as a cross Canada approach. And from overcrowding of prisons or something like that? Overcrowding of courts um, and also recognizing that prosecuting people for possessing drugs um, that are in small enough amounts to only be for personal consumption doesn't really achieve anything. Oh, yeah, I'm so it's a little, surprised that they recognize yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a little soft on crime approach that I love. Um, I say soft on crime like it's a good thing, by the way, because um, it is. Um, but the, uh, yeah, so we haven't really seen because the impact that the pandemic had on our court system and prosecution and police investigations, how that's played out. It also doesn't mean that people who are arrested for simple possession are just like, let go. What happens instead is that they get forwarded to this alternative measures program where they're told you either do these things or we're going to charge you. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they're just there's like no law against civil possession or that it's effectively decriminalized. It still is treated through the criminal justice system. Do you believe that the laws need to change? Yes. If I were the justice minister, there's a number of things I would do. One, I would rewrite our impaired driving laws significantly. I would get rid of all the presumptions in the criminal code. I would allow people to introduce evidence to the contrary. Um, I would uh, create exemptions under the CDSA for more testing to determine good scientific measurements um, for impairment and what actually constitutes impairment by various drugs that are commonly used by individuals. Um, and I would get rid of almost all drug offenses, period. 
Um, I would regulate and provide safe supplies of all drugs, um, you know, so you could walk into the drugstore <laughs> and get your heroin if you want, or you could walk into the drugstore and get meth. Um, and I would also make available in those places, although not make mandatory or direct people to them, services that deal with the treatment of addiction and mental health issues. And all the money that we'd save on all of this prosecution of drug offenses and funding a justice system that deals with drug offenses in court every day, millions of dollars of time spent on judges and prosecutors and sheriffs and probation officers, and I'd spend it all on addiction and mental health supports and early interventions in schools for addiction and mental health issues. So I would personally 100% agree with all of that. <laughs> yeah, vote but... for me, I'll never run. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm also thinking about someone who might say that you're just making it easier for people to access Yeah, that's drugs. the point. <laughs> and, well, I mean, yes. But in doing so that you might be encouraging people who haven't tried drugs to try them. No, because you could say that about alcohol or quinoa. Um, and <laughs> let me tell you, I am not encouraged to try quinoa just because I can get it on the menu at pretty much every place I go. Um, it doesn't encourage you to try drugs just because you can buy them. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and if we raise people with the same understanding of this is how you can be affected by a drug that we should be raising them with alcohol. You know, the responsible parents out there who are saying, look, this is all the fun stuff that can happen with alcohol, and this is all the bad stuff that can happen with alcohol, and here's how to make responsible decisions, mm -hmm. then we're not going to have a problem. And we see that model working in other countries in the world. I mean, I think about countries that have a much lower drinking age than we do having less problems with people drinking. Yep. Um, that would be kind of, a, I guess, a simplified example of, of that, perhaps. Exactly. I mean, you have Europe, uh, most of Europe, where they don't have a drinking age or it's not enforced. I mean, when I was like seven, they served me a glass of wine in a restaurant in France and I was gobsmacked. Mm -hmm. I didn't like wine, but I bet if I was a seven-year-old that had been grown up in France, I would enjoy wine and I would appreciate wine. And I would know that I can have a glass of wine with dinner and it's not going to be bad and how to responsibly drink wine. In the same way that we see now, people responsibly enjoy and appreciate cannabis and the different strains and flavors and terpenes and all of those things that people talk about that I don't entirely understand um, related to cannabis that make it not just something that you know you can smoke to get high and, and relax, but also that you can enjoy as part of a really nice meal um, paired with a really nice wine. Or There's cooking shows about yeah, cooking with cannabis exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> There's whole restaurant concepts that, that in not here, but in other uh, countries or in states where cannabis is legal that serve cannabis-infused menus. Mm -hmm. And they're great. Um, you know, we don't have, and we haven't seen since cannabis legalization, a massive increase in the use of cannabis. So if we didn't see that with cannabis, there is no reason to believe that all of a sudden there's going to be a rush on the heroin or a rush on the meth by people who otherwise would have no interest in doing those things. How has the war on drugs affected our correctional system? Oh my god. Uh, well, it's caused it to be overcrowded. Um, I mean, l to a lesser extent in Canada, in part because we don't have the same sentencing regimes that have happened in the US, but there are still 
uh, people in jail serving sentences for cannabis offenses. Still, five years after legalization, you know, amnesty that we were promised didn't come. We got some amnesty for some cannabis offenses in certain circumstances that didn't affect anybody who was in jail for it. Um, and people who are charged with offenses related to harder drugs are uh, facing lengthy jail sentences still and serving periods of time in jail that aren't necessarily required. And the war on drugs is fueled by the imposition, which was done under the Harper government, of mandatory minimum sentences for most drug offenses. So you have all these people that had no choice once they were convicted but to go to jail, who could have been appropriately supported in the community by the imposition of conditions like house arrest, which doesn't tax our correctional services in the same way. Like you still have to report to a supervisor and all of that, but a lot of that monitoring can be done remotely. You can phone in, you can wear an ankle monitor, um, although I don't agree with ankle monitoring or, or electronic monitoring generally, but um, you know, you can, you can check up that somebody's complying with their conditions. They can come to your office and check in. It's a lot easier to monitor people and support them and make them contributing members of society with legitimate jobs um, that aren't illegal when you have them in the community rather than putting people in prison. And I think our prison systems, as much as we talk about them being for rehabilitation, no. they're not really, no. it's just to punish people, right? It's it, like, they are, we see Norway actually having a system that is focused on rehabilitation, but it doesn't seem like our system here is. Yeah, so what the problem is, we do have rehabilitative programming in prison, but there are more prisoners than there are available spots in programming. Oh. So people who are serving longer sentences are more likely to be able to access programming because they actually have the time to sit through the wait list, get into the program and complete it. And if you're a couple of months from your release date and you finally, your name comes up on the wait list, they're not going to admit you into the programming because you wouldn't be able to complete the programming before you're going to be released. So all of the rehabilitation things that exist in prison are not available to every prisoner. They're not fully funded. They're not, in fact, a lot of them are offered by community-based organizations that get permission to come into prison offering those services rather than being funded by government. Oh, wow. And with the pandemic, we saw the cancellation of most, if not all programming in prisons um, because they weren't bringing people in because of the massive problems with COVID outbreaks, people being segregated as a result of COVID protocols, um, uh, the, the programming stopped. And prisons don't permit you to use like electronic um, communication, right? You can't send an email from prison. You can't, um, you can't access the internet. You don't have a cell phone. Those are banned. Um, so you have no ability to sort of use remote mechanisms. Like, you know, we all just adapted to Zoom. We all just Zoomed everything and we did court on MS Teams, but prisons, nope. It took them the longest just to get access to court in a more um, widespread fashion for people to to um, just dial into court. They had it before, but they had to change it to be compatible with the system that everybody else was using. And prison was the slowest of everything. Wow. 
mean, it, it seems like our elected officials and the general public even don't really care too much about prisoners. No, but, you know, who's going to run a campaign? Like, you're not going to get votes by being like, hey, I'm going to make prisons a lot more fun. I'm going to make prison a place where people can get all sorts of programming and do all sorts of things that people who are not in prison are going to say, well, wait a minute, I also can't access those services. Mm -hmm. Like, how easy is it? for anybody to go find a psychiatrist. Well, you have to have a doctor and then your doctor has to refer you and then you have to wait on a wait list. And um, oh, it's not covered by MSP, so you have to pay for it. And then the taxpayer says, well, why am I paying out of pocket and waiting around for a service? Well, the government's paying for it for people in jail. They committed crimes. They shouldn't have the same rights or better rights or better health care than the rest of us. And then you end up just having this never-ending cycle of people going yes. to prison, coming out worse than they went in, and yes, exactly. going back in. There's also something known as labeling theory, where if you sentence people to prison, they're more likely to associate themselves with the label of criminal. And to um, and to because they self-associate with the label of criminal, they then can't like disassociate once they're released from prison. So they don't go back into society by and large um, and engage in, you know, productive pro-social behavior because the label has brought them down cognitively um, in a way that, that causes them to fall in with the wrong crowd and continue to repeat offend. So prison itself is actually responsible for the mental consequences of people engaging in reoffending behavior. Wow. Really counterproductive in that sense. Yes. <laughs> What options are available to people who have been struggling with addiction, maybe, and are looking for help? Um, not a lot, unfortunately. Like, there are, you know, uh, there's obviously NA and AA, and you can go to those meetings, and there's other sort of community-based support groups that aren't religiously focused, like the NA and AA programs. But if you're in a remote area, or if you, you know, have transportation problems or you don't have access to the internet, um, these things are harder to get. And most mental health um, uh, supports in BC have massive wait lists. Um, many of them require a doctor's referral. And a lot of the treatment beds, like at treatment centers, require you to be clean and sober before you go in. But good luck getting clean and sober if you need help getting clean and sober. Yeah. Again, counterproductive, it seems. Yes. And, you know, then there's all sorts of different models of how treatment programs work. And, you know, I, I know about this from my own experience with having an eating disorder. Um, you know, I did a treatment program at St. Paul's where it was rules, 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 rules. Um, and it didn't work for me because, you know, my brain was like, ooh, rules about food. I'm going to make lots of rules about food. And then, you know, all the rules essentially meant that I didn't get to eat. Um, so a rules-based treatment program was not good for me. And I eventually had to go to Manitoba and pay out of pocket to access a, um, a treatment program there that was more about like independent living and learning how to not have rules related to food, but still be normal in eating, which I'm not, but you know, I eat now. I'm not so, either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, who is? Yeah. And that was the thing, right? Like at St. Paul's, for example, they were like, you can only have two sauces on a meal. You can't have any more than that. And I was like, but I want, like, what if I want ketchup and mustard and mayonnaise on a hamburger? That's not allowed. Like, but if I went to the program in Manitoba, they would say, yeah, put whatever, whatever you want in your hamburger. Just eat your hamburger. 
So, you know, um, and it's the same with drug treatment programs. You have ones where there's rules and you have to follow all of these rules, which might not be the right approach for lots of people. And you have ones where there are no rules, where you can literally walk away at any time and go buy drugs and they just, you know, trust you to to not. Um, And that might not be the right program for somebody. But because of the limited resources and the limits on accessing those resources, people can end up in the wrong programs, which can then take them a long time to actually get the, the help that they need. And it seems strange that the programs that are accessible are are not all of the different programs, yeah. uh, because one of the biggest things that I've heard of when it comes to eating disorders is calorie counting, yeah. which is just a very strict set of rules, basically. So for someone who's doing that, I would imagine they probably want a program that doesn't have those kinds of strict rules that maybe their predisposition to want to follow. Yes, exactly. And I mean, the same thing with, with drug programs. You might have a program where somebody is permitted to use um, still within the program, but to wean themselves off or, you know, to deal with like, you know, eating disorders and addictions are, I think, like cousins. <laughs> um, they're, they're both beasts. So they're different, but they're the same in a lot of ways. Uh, they may even be siblings. Um, and so, you know, the the mindset that you get into with the eating disorder and having to overcome all of that is I have to learn, like, I can't not eat and I can't eat all the time. Like, neither of those things are acceptable. Um, both of them are disordered. But I can't avoid food. Like, there's no... There's no life without food so that I don't have to have a life without an eating disorder. So you have to learn to live with it and learn what works for you. And, you know, I know people who now they eat very strict diets um, that are very like healthy, lots of that quinoa and kale and gross stuff like that. Um, But they eat and they're a healthy weight and they ingest a healthy number of calories every day. Um, And then there's me and I'm, you know, eating candy for dinner three nights a week (laughs) and that's okay too um so you might have people who are um drug addicted who never get off drugs but learn how to have an appropriate relationship with drugs and i think when we think of addiction treatment we don't think about that group of people we don't think about people who are never going to not use drugs again and who also are never going to use drugs in a way that is harmful to themselves or others again but who are still going to continue to use drugs probably for the rest of their lives. Just and, doing it in a sustainable manner, I guess? Yeah, and we don't nurture that. Like, I don't, you know, we have people who are, people who probably have alcohol addictions, but who use alcohol in a normal fashion. I mean, I can think of people I know that have a couple drinks every day, and you wouldn't think, oh, that's bad, but that's an alcohol addiction. Mm-hmm. But we accept that as being socially normal. So why can't we do that with drugs? Absolutely. I mean, I know that I have my own vices. Like, I do a lot of the same things. I'll have candy for dinner sometimes, right? Um, we should have dinner together sometime. We should. But I also have this thing where I do, um, I guess it's delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. So if I haven't been productive during the day, I won't allow myself to eat because I can't eat until I've been productive. Right. And then you end up in this dangerous cycle where you're not eating because you're never and as then you're not you productive be. because you didn't eat and you don't have the energy yes. yeah <laughs> yeah and so I'll, I'll find myself so often just eating at 1 a.m and then going oh and now i have a burst of energy to get things done until <laughs> yeah. 5 a.m and now i can't wake up the next day <laughs> yeah this is the problem though we the stigma about drug use is it's been fueled to such a degree that 
those of us who, you know, very recreationally use drugs or who are not people who have addictions issues view drug users as the other. Mm-hmm. And because we other drug users, we don't we don't see where our own vices and our own issues and our own lifestyles overlap with what drug users do and and what drug users are like just with respect to drugs. Something that I found in all of these episodes of a social justice podcast where we'll talk about an issue and then I'll realize that we're going to discuss the same issue in another podcast under a different topic, but it's all about intersectionality. Like mm-hmm. you can't just separate any of these issues. They always overlap with each other. Yeah. I kind of brought up before how I understand some laws as they relate to the U.S. because it's so easy to find information about U.S. laws. Yeah. But it's so difficult to find information about how we differ in Canada. So if someone was interested in learning about their rights in Canada as it relates to drug criminalization or, or really anything related to the law, where might they go to find that? Do they have to hire a lawyer? You do not have to hire a lawyer. Um, you can definitely talk to like drug-related advocacy groups. They usually have lawyers or have received legal advice and will have pamphlets with legal information. Um, you can also talk to lawyers for free. Um, you can call uh, the lawyer referral service um, through Access Pro Bono. You can make an appointment with Access Pro Bono to speak uh, to a lawyer for free for half an hour. Um, I volunteer on that line, so oh, <laughs> shameless uh, plug for an organization I volunteer for. Oh, plug away. Um, <laughs> you can also um, you can also find uh, resources online. There's Dial a Law, where you can phone in, or they have a website um, with legal information. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the People's Law School. Um, there's um, the Amicus Curiae Society. Um, so there's all sorts of different groups that you can find information from. And also most criminal lawyers will talk to you about these things if you ask. You can send an email and you'll get a response. It might take a day or two, but yeah, you will get information about your rights and you don't have to pay for it. Usually they'll just give you a free answer. Right, because I think that's people's fear when they're reaching out to a lawyer. <laughs> Are going to charge me $400 an hour? Like, no, <laughs> no, most lawyers. And, you know, there's also at the courthouse, uh, Duty Council, um, who is a free lawyer funded by the government, available to give advice. Um, so you can go to the courthouse and you can ask to speak to Duty Council. Great. That, those are some really good suggestions because I recently signed up for Legal Shield, thinking that was going to be a, a good solution and probably is for certain things. But for me, it didn't work because they just put me on with a lawyer who didn't really know anything about the question that I was asking. Yeah. So it's nice to know all of these other different options that are out there so that you can find one that works best for you. Yeah, and you can email me. Please don't call me because I don't have time to even call anybody these days. But if you email me, I will email back. Fantastic. Yeah. Are there any other issues related to drug criminalization that you think the audience listening today should be aware of that we haven't touched on already? One thing. the the federal government has recently introduced a bill it's called bill c5 and it's very close to being implemented and it will repeal mandatory minimum sentences for most uh, drug offenses in canada which would allow judges to impose community-based sentences and deal more with rehabilitative type programming than punitive programming for drug offenses Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really uh, enlightening to hear everything that you've had to say. Well, thanks it's a little for having bit of me. A, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's been a bit of a different dynamic because normally we'll have 
three people up here and we'll have one person who's an expert, another person who has experience with the issue firsthand in some capacity. And we were going to do that today, but the person who we were going to have on wasn't able to make it, unfortunately. So I really appreciate you taking all of the questions <laughs> well, for me today. Hopefully it was informative enough. <laughs> I think it was great. And as with all of the, the first probably 20 topics that we're going to be covering, they're very sort of broad topics that I think we'll want to dig into a little bit further in the future. Yeah. But I, I really appreciate this sort of broad overview and the perspective that you brought. And this has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Burling, joined by Kyla Lee, and I look forward to seeing you in the next one. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.